0: Welcome to this episode of From What If To What Next. I'm your host, Rob Hopkins. This is the podcast where we gently wrap you up in a warm blanket of possibility and carry you into the near future to tenderly allow you to see, taste, hear and feel a different future than the one that appears to currently be on offer. This is a podcast about imagination. Rather than just looking at issues, we dare to dream, to really allow ourselves to imagine that the changes we argue for with our heads might actually become a daily reality in our lives. Today we're exploring a really big what-if question. I recently read a post by someone on social media asking how different Gotham City might have been if, instead of putting on his Batman costume, gathering an arsenal of cool gadgets and going out and beating up poor people, Bruce Wayne had instead distributed his vast fortune to the poorest communities of the city. It made me laugh, but also leads us beautifully into our conversation today. The recent Black Lives Matter revolution and the upcoming US election have really focused imaginations on the question of how much money is invested into the criminal justice system and mass incarceration into systems of brutality that traumatise and intimidate communities of colour, while funding for good housing, health, social programmes, literacy, good food, meaningful work and so on keep being cut under the guise of austerity. We're seeing some cities in the US starting to move towards defunding aspects of the work of their police departments and moving that money instead towards supporting the ability of people in those communities to lead lives of dignity, safety and hope. But it's just a tiny start. Where could it go? How would such a shift transform the world? What might it unlock? And so our question on today's episode of From What If to What Next is, what if criminal justice resources were instead invested into communities of (laughs) colour? To explore this question, I'm joined by two fantastic guests, both of whom I couldn't be more honoured to have with me today. Zach Norris is the Executive Director of the Ella Baker Centre for Human Rights, author of We Keep Us Safe building secure, just and inclusive communities and co-founder of Restore Oakland, a community advocacy and training centre that will empower Bay Area community members to transform local economic and justice systems and to make a safe and secure future possible for themselves and for their families. Zach is also a co-founder of Justice for Families, a national alliance of family-driven organisations working to end the US's youth incarceration epidemic. Zach helped build California's first statewide network for families of incarcerated youth, which led the effort to close five youth prisons in the state, passed legislation to enable families to stay in contact with their loved ones, and defeated Prop 6, a destructive and ineffective criminal justice ballot measure. In addition to being a Harvard graduate and NYU-educated attorney, Zach is also a graduate of the Labour Community Strategy Center's National School for Strategic Organising in L.A., and was a 2011 Soros Justice Fellow. He's a former board member at Witness for Peace, Just Cause Oakland, and Justice for Families. Zach was recipient of the American Constitution Society's David Carlin, public interest award in 2015, and is a member of the 2016 class of the Levi Strauss Foundation's Pioneers for Justice. Andrea J. Ritchie is a black lesbian immigrant and police misconduct attorney and a 2014 Senior Soros Justice Fellow with more than two decades experience advocating against police violence and the criminalisation of women and LGBTQ people of colour. She's currently researcher in residence on race, gender, sexuality and criminalization at the Barnard Center for Research on Women and the co-author of Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women and Queer Injustice, the Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States. She lives in Brooklyn, New York and Chicago. Thank you both so much for joining me today.
1: Hey, thanks, Rob. Appreciate being here.
2: Thanks for having us. I'm looking forward to being wrapped in that warm blanket and taken to the
0: future. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do our best. I'd like to start this show with an exercise that we always start with. I'd like to invite you both to make yourselves comfortable and to close your eyes. And the same invitation goes out to you listening to this. I'd like you to imagine that thanks to this amazing time machine that I built here during the lockdown, we're going to travel forward to the year 2030. The 10 years we travelled through to get there were tumultuous and difficult, but also exhilarating and thrilling. And it was a time of remarkable transformation and transition. And we now arrive at a time when everything that could have been done was done. And this 2030 we step out into with its birdsong and cleaner air is a time when most of the resources that in 2020 went into law enforcement and criminal justice now go into poorer and marginalised communities. The transformation has been remarkable and the changes it brought about that in 2020 were unimaginable. I'd like to invite you both to take us on a walk through that world in your imaginations. What does it look like, sound like, feel like, smell like? Can you give us a taste of a day in the life uh, in that future? Andrea?
2: I'm so excited to be there. It's a future in which all Black girls, queer and trans people are safe from all forms of violence and are have all the resources they need to not just survive, but to thrive and to reach their highest human potential. So it's a world that you walk through that is green and bright and clean in the way that you're describing, but it's also filled with laughter and joy from people of a wide representation of genders. And also there's some sounds of conflict, people disagreeing about things, but it's healthy conflict. It's generative conflict. It's a conflict that leads to new ideas and new possibilities. So it's not a a world where we never disagree. It's a world where disagreement and conflict is encouraged as a generative process and in ways that are not harmful, but that lead us to new options. People are learning in every way that makes sense to them. People are not sort of disciplined into learning in boxes for hours and standardized tests, but are learning from other people in the community, from elders, from younger people, about the things that are important to them in the ways that work best for them. And people are contributing as they're able and doing so in community and conversation with elders, with young people. It's a multi-generational world and it's one in which people are, not only operating for the joy and pleasure of the moment, but also operating from a perspective that takes into account the joy and pleasure of seven generations into the future of all beings.
0: Glorious, glorious. Thank you so much. Zach?
1: Um, Well, thank you, Rob, for that invitation. I'd like to welcome you to Oakland, California, although we may have renamed it um, after the uh, original inhabitants of this land and, and what they called it. Um, it is still, though, a city by the bay with a beautiful lake right in the heart of downtown. And you still find people jogging around it and biking, and the air is clear. Um, it's still a space of recreation um, where where all are welcome, but it's also now a space of, of restoration um, where day and night and by night, We see the string lights um, around the lake, which are solar generated, still illuminating those conversations that Andrea described. You smell pupusas and barbecue, um, and there are conversations about healing, healing the past, healing the present, um, and healing into the future. We talk about Um, the Costanoan people and the indigenous folks who are with us talk and lead conversations about how we can heal the genocide of indigenous people that happened here in California. We talk about how to heal from more recent discrimination, the, the barbecue beckys, the micro and macro aggressions that impacted black folks, that impacted queer folks, that impacted so many communities. And we also look to the future um, and we're continuing to assess how the resources within Oakland should be distributed. The lake is a center of those conversations, but it's not the only center because every neighborhood, there are no longer poor and marginalized neighborhoods. Every neighborhood in Oakland, we see people coming out of their homes. We see people engaging in work to restore the environment. Uh, And places that were once, you know, centers of commerce and and distraction, like Bay Street, are returned to the spiritual places, the shell mounds that indigenous people created uh, ages ago. That kind of restoration is happening also at Eastmont Mall, which in the 1920s was a car factory and then became a mall and then became a town center where marginalized folks went to collect social services. But now it's a space where people are um, engaging in the the sharing of wealth, uh, having conversations to heal communities. And I actually see some of that happening right here in the present. The, the beginnings of that, the Black Cultural Zone. We just had, you know, artisans and and folks from different communities at Eastmont just a few days ago, coming out even despite COVID. And and I think about how ten years ago things were so different, and now that environment has completely taken over the entire neighborhood. And so people are exchanging ideas. They are healing harm. And there is no longer a dependence on incarceration and policing as people now clearly identify those as being false solutions to creating community safety.
0: Wow, thank you both so much. That was beautiful. Um I wonder if, if we might start with a sense from both of you of where we find ourselves now in the US context in terms of this discussion. Clearly, the up Coming election will have a lot to say in terms of which direction we go in. But where is the discussion around this topic at right now? Uh, Andrea?
2: We're in the midst of, uh, in the US and globally, a triple pandemic, right? Certainly of coronavirus, which has really laid bare in ways that can no longer be ignored the deadly impacts of anti Black and structural racism, of anti Indigenous structural racism, of colonialism and of global imperialism, and in ways that have been devastating to Black communities and have really exposed the fault lines and the ways in which structures and institutions collaborate to distribute life chances, to distribute trauma, as Prentice Hempel teaches us, and to distribute healing um, opportunities in ways that that obviously are deadly um, and devastating to Black and Brown communities. and And we're also, obviously, on the brink of, if not in the midst of the biggest economic crisis of our generation in terms of mass unemployment, mass eviction, uh, mass housing insecurity, mass food insecurity, and the ongoing epidemic of state violence, which continues in the face of decades and decades of efforts to reform, to reduce harm, to reduce scope of policing, etc. And I think those three things, and of course, the, the ongoing epidemic of climate catastrophe and injustice, have really brought us to the point in the US where where a growing number of people understand that our very survival is at stake. And that at this point, we are continuing to pour $100 billion a year into institutions that do nothing uh, to increase our safety and do everything to perpetrate and perpetuate violence in our communities. And that those institutions of policing, punishment, surveillance, prison, are looting resources, literally, from the things that we need to survive. In New York State, where I live, the first thing that was cut by the governor in the first week of the pandemic was healthcare. And there was no indication that there was gonna be any cut. In fact, there were gonna be increases to money spent on police, even as we watched police kill George Floyd on camera, shoot Breonna Taylor to death as she slept in her bed, kill Tony McDade, and so many others, hundreds of others since then. It's a reckoning. It's a moment that people are saying, we will not lay down and die. We are fighting for our survival. We are fighting for the resources we need to survive all of these pandemics. And we are radically re-examining how we understand safety and how we achieve it and demanding a divestment, not just financially from policing and punishment, although that's certainly the front burner because of the economic crisis that we're in and that many cities and states and the country is in but also an ideological and an emotional divestment from policing and punishment. And that's the biggest challenge to get us to where Zach described to where I described is that we have to really let go of our understanding of how we address conflict, harm, and need, how we have really just delegated all responsibility for dealing with conflict, harm, and need to the state, and then allowed them to deploy mechanisms of violence and only violence in order to to do that. And we're trying to do this exercise of imagination, which is why I so appreciate this conversation, this podcast, and, and the ways in which we're being pushed to dream, because our dreams are what will save us in this moment, um, but it really requires us to stretch beyond tinkering with what exists and really looking deep inside as well as around us as to how we conceptualize safety and and how we're going to mobilize our resources to ensure it for the greatest number of people and for the people who are experiencing the multiple forms of violence and the intersection of multiple systems of oppression.
1: I don't have a lot to add to what Andrea had to say. Maybe I'll just say it differently. And one thing I would add, Rob, is though the elections uh, upcoming are incredibly critical to the future of people inside the united states and i would say the world we also know that it has been a bipartisan affair in terms of how we got to where we are currently so i was born in 1977 and through all of my life, the two things that have been recession proof inside the United States have been policing and prisons. So building off of what Andrea said, like, you know, 53 cents of every federal dollar goes to the military. States like California built 23 new prisons and just one new university from 1980 to 2000. The lion's share of city budgets and municipal budgets go to policing and so the very things that have accelerated the morbidity and mortality of black and brown people are the things that have been recession proof and that has been under democratic leadership as well as republican reverend barber calls um the the other aspects the cuts to health care the death measures on the down low that for Every, I think, half a million people who don't have health care, 1800 people will die. That 700 people die of hunger every day inside the United States. And, and so we have a governance in this country that has been oriented around extracting the, the wealth of communities and has resulted in the death of community members. And I like to describe it succinctly by saying that This nation was founded in part on the motto that the only good Indian is a dead Indian as settlers spread across the United States. And I think in the past 40 years, we have seen a bipartisan belief that the only good governance is a death governance, is a governance that prioritizes the things that actually lock people up and lock them down rather than um, prioritizing the things that would lift up communities and ultimately lead to, to real safety in this country.
0: Mm-hmm. We're talking about money that would otherwise go into policing and mass incarceration instead going into poorer communities and communities of color. In the event that that were to happen, What would you say should be the priorities? How would you allocate the spending of these funds? Who should decide and where would you target them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would first say that um, this is a question that is incredibly important for the future of our democracy. And I think what we've seen is the same scapegoating that has um, been leveraged against communities of color against queer and trans folks in this country are now being leveraged against an entire party, the Democratic Party. So rather than the president really recognizing that climate change is at the root of wildfires, he's blaming a Democratic governor. Rather than recognizing that people in Portland are standing up for civil and human rights, he's blaming a Democratic mayor. And this logic of us versus them can really have tragic consequences in terms of the viability of democracies, even uh, democracies that are sort of lifted up globally, sometimes I think wrongly in terms of the United States. That being said, I think we can turn this around. And I think that there's a growing number of people who recognize the dire straits that the country is in and who are pushing for, as Andrea said, not just a, an economic shift, but really an ideological shift. And some of us have been slower to coming to realizing the, the necessity of that shift than others. But I think it's really starting to turn. The first thing I will say is that we need public health solutions to public health issues. And so things like drug use and abuse and mental health crises and school discipline are things that in many countries are dealt with through a public health approach. And also inside the United States, if I'm at Harvard University or I have a certain amount of class and race privilege, then those things in my life will also be dealt with through a public health approach. And so what we're saying is that should be true regardless of zip code, regardless of gender identification um, or or gender identity, I should say, regardless of, of racial identity. And so I think there's a lot of great opportunities to begin to to shift away from a first response to, to people who are suicidal, you know, men with guns sh- showing up. Rather than doing that, let's actually respond with the mental health crisis workers and the folks who actually understand how to de-escalate situations and to support people going through difficult times. So those are some of the easy ways that I think we could begin to shift in the right direction. And I'm sure Andrea could build on on that as well.
2: I think the process starts with asking communities themselves and then making sure that when we're talking to folks in communities, we're engaging in the kinds of exercise that we're doing here about what, what safety feels like, what safety looks like, what tangible material changes are in place. Because I think that sometimes when we, we ask communities, you know, what they need for more safety, people say more police or they say something that turns out to be more surveillance. So there is an alternate 10-year future where there are no police, but there is a surveillance state um, in place that has cameras everywhere where everyone's every move is tracked and where there they don't need to be police in order to engage in policing as a practice and punishment as a practice. So we need to be careful that that's not the alternate universe we wind up in 10 years from now. And so that requires us to really Be careful to not say we're going to shift from a police approach to a public health approach where there are elements of a public health framework that involve policing, and we're seeing that in the context, for instance, of COVID-19. And we've seen that throughout U.S. history in the context of how public health was constructed, in fact, to regulate the bodies and autonomy of Black, Brown, Indigenous, and working-class immigrant people, and particularly women and girls. And so we want to make sure that people's imaginations are stimulated past what we know. What we know is police, whether it's in the form of a cop or in the form of a social worker or a teacher or a, a health care provider who has the power to incapacitate you with drugs as opposed to handcuffs and incarcerate you for 72 hours or indefinitely in a state hospital instead of a jail. And so we want to make sure that we're not sort of just transferring the power to do the same things to different people. And we want to really have folks imagine the basic things that will produce safety for communities. And what people consistently say uh, is they need adequate, not just adequate, they need quality affordable and accessible safe housing, they need living wage, sustainable, engaging employment, and it's also accessible to disabled people, that people need health care, universal, culturally competent, available on every corner, including mental health care, right? People should be able to access mental health care before a point of crisis when someone might need to be called to respond. At the corner store, at the barbershop, at the church, but maybe also at the, you know, on the corner where people are hanging out. People need to be able to access that in ways that are non-stigmatized and and accessible to everyone. And, And those are the things, the top three things that I hear most often. And the last thing I'll say is that people also need skills and relationships and infrastructures to address the harm that humans inevitably do to each other right there we unfortunately can't wave a wand and make patriarchy go away homophobia transphobia colorism there's a whole there's so many structures of violence that have been embedded in us and we need the skills to unearth them inside of us and also address the harms that will continue to exist even as we move towards um, ending those systems because we're humans and I'm going to bump into you one day or I'm going to bump into Zach and I'm going to have to say I'm sorry in a way that Zach finds convincing and and that we're going to be able to navigate how I'm not going to bump into him again when we're walking down the same side of the street and that, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that, obviously, in situations that are maybe a bit more serious than that.
0: I'd love to hear your thoughts on what kind of a society could emerge from such a shift of, of funding going into communities rather than into criminal justice. And Zach, I saw a TEDx talk you gave where you talked about how restorative justice moves us towards a culture where we ask, how did this harm happen? I found it really moving. How did this harm happen? And I think it would be such a profound shift to live in communities that were resourced to be able to support that question being asked and then to support... What emerges as a result? what What would we see shifting as a result of this? and how would it how would it feel different from what we have today?
1: Yeah, one of the beautiful things about um, restorative justice and um, transformative justice uh, is that When two people, when, you know, let's say, and picking up on Andrea's um, hypothetical, let's say, you know, one person has really harmed another person inside a community. In the typical criminal court process, it's an adversarial process. And the state comes in and divides people up and claims to support victims' rights. But most victims are not satisfied with the criminal court process. In contrast, restorative justice, the person who's caused harm, the person who's been harmed, are surrounded by those folks that support them. they are kind of circles of of support, and each person in that circle, not just the two in the center of the circle, are uh, really called upon to ask, "What could I have done to make this situation different?" And so, not just for the the person who's caused harm, who will be less likely to cause harm in the future, not just for the person who's been harmed, who victims report much higher satisfaction rates with restorative justice processes than than going through the criminal court process, but also for each and every person who is part of that circle, they benefit. um, And they benefit because they're engaged in a process that for eons and generations, and Millennium, people had to figure out when someone causes harm, how do we how do we address that? And I think that we need to go back to some of that wisdom and and really explore how we can be healing harm, but also building community, right? And I think that's one of the things that for me is at the top of my mind as we see the sort of spiraling out of democracy um, inside the United States, the semblance of it the investment in restorative justice, the investment in these kinds of processes of actually dealing with harm could help not just the, the people who are inside that circle be held accountable, but quite frankly, politicians and, and powerful people who are wildly unaccountable currently inside the United States. We need to build this community accountability muscle so that we can hold everybody accountable in ways that I think would be transformative in this country.
0: Thank you. Andrea?
2: There's a series of posters that Mariam Kaba and other transformative justice practitioners put out that ask similar questions sort of what happened here, what is needed to make it right, what was the person who did harm thinking at the time, what do they need to do to make it right, what did the person who experienced harm, what was the impact on them, what do they need to make it right. And the reason they did this as a poster project is because we also need to be practicing these things every day. We don't need a sort of circle or a project necessarily to do it that in fact, to get to the world that we're dreaming of, we, we can start now. We can start in our everyday interactions. We can start in our everyday family structures in, and asking those questions every time harm happens in relatively small ways and in large ways. And then the other questions lead us to, the ones that Zach was pointing us to, which is what are the conditions that made this possible and how do we make sure that doesn't happen again? And that's also part of the framework of reparations that Zach was referring to earlier that 10 years from now, you know, we have started a process of reparations to the original peoples of this land, to the people enslaved to build the economy that is driving it. And, to the migrants who we've excluded or excluded within or outside borders, to disabled people who we've disabled through the ways that we live our lives, and that we have looked at the conditions that have produced the harms and we have transformed them. And I think that's on an individual level, on an incident-to-incident level, and on the scale of systemic harm through the reparations framework.
0: And the focus of this podcast is on imagination and how we cultivate the best conditions for it across society. It strikes me the questions that underpin both of your work. What if there were no prisons? What if there was no police? What if funding went to communities of colour instead of a criminal justice? Are massive what-if questions. Questions that black communities, communities of colour and others have kept alive for decades now. At a time when our survival depends on people everywhere being able to drive forward and realize really good what-if questions in their own communities and at different levels. What advice would you have for how to keep such bold leaps of the imagination alive in the world over time?
2: This is an unprecedented time that we're living in. We're at a point where we're not going back to some imagined past, and we could go in very, very, very dangerous directions. We're going in those directions. And This is not the time to be timid in our demands or in our resistance and hoping that if we just put our heads down or we say something that's palatable to say the democratic party that you know we we can make it this is the time when we need to be making just really bold demands and really again like pushing ourselves in these practices of imagination daily of how things could not just be slightly different or a little better or not as bad but radically different. and that's that's a scary process for a lot of us to imagine a world that looks nothing like the one that we're in now and careening towards, but it's the one that we need to be engaged in,
1: yeah, I would just add that, um, I think we need touch points along the way, invisible examples to help guide us from the present to where we want to go. I'm reminded of the fact that we waged a really long campaign to move resources inside of our county alameda county away from the sheriff and probation department and towards what were described as kind of community-based re-entry supports and to andrea's point like even though we were successful in moving those resources um, that, that those monies away from the sort of jailers effectively in our county we found that when those resources were being spent they were often being spent on a lot of the same social service providers right that i think andrea correctly identified in in terms of the failed public health approach who were saying they were going to do provide people with real jobs were really doing job training or they you know were saying they were doing restorative justice but really weren't deeply connecting with community members and so We, along with other community-based organizations, decided to try to create a visual aid that we call Restore Oakland. It is an 18,000-square-foot building where we're housing nonprofit organizations that are serving the community that has a dedicated space for restorative justice. Economic opportunity is a central part of Restore Oakland. And I think that um, much like in the environmental movement, it's been helpful to be able to see solar panels and wind turbines to actually imagine a different energy future, I think it's also important to be able to see physical infrastructure that is designed to support a new community safety infrastructure. And so really thinking about how do we visibilize the healing work that should be a part of our everyday lives within our families and homes and in communities, but really thinking about how We can capture people's imagination so that when we are having those conversations about what's possible, people can be brainstorming and starting to see and and kind of building our own imagination muscle much as we're doing on this call. But I think, you know, too few people have an opportunity to do that and, and creating some physical infrastructure can support having those kinds of conversations be more frequent and more possible.
0: Mm. One of the things seem, you meant, you talked about healing, one of the things that seems to run through uh, work that you guys do and through restorative justice and so on is that they recognize and work with trauma, those intergenerational levels of trauma that can prove so harmful. How do you both see the role of trauma and how have you seen the more enlightened approaches you both work with beginning to address the trauma at the root of this?
2: I would really point people to the work of practitioners like uh, Prentice Hemphill and others in Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity and, and other formations who are really looking at trauma, not just as an individual response to harm or violence or systemic oppression, but also one of the, the tools, the weapons of oppression, right? And that we often think about systemic oppression as being about how life chances are distributed in service of accumulation of wealth and, and maintenance of white supremacy, we don't think about also that those systems also distribute trauma and they distribute opportunities to heal from trauma very differently in, in service of those same power relations. And so when we're organizing, we're not often addressing how trauma is playing out in our interactions, in our organizing, in our conflicts, uh, in our principled differences, political differences. And I think that to me, that is a place where we really need to pay more attention to healing and transformation on the individual level, both in terms of how we understand repair when we, so when we're talking about divestment from policing, we're not just talking about a financial divestment, we're talking about our own ideological and emotional divestment from that and what response we want to see when we're hurt and when we're harmed or traumatized. And that we're also thinking about how, the role that trauma plays in in maintaining the systems that we're fighting, and how we need to then address them in order to to win the world that we're moving towards, and that's that's not something that the left has paid a lot of attention to in my Mm. experience (laughs) over the past few decades and we've paid the price for it. And I certainly know that from very personal experience and also from the collective experience and even where we are at this moment, as we're facing down fascism, we're not ready to be honest because we haven't addressed this issue.
0: Thank you. Uh, Zach.
1: Yeah, I think we're still exploring this question organizationally. Um, You know, we think about different forms of power within our organization and we're doing a strategic planning process. I know there's a little bit behind the scenes, but one of the things that we're adding is healing power as a a modality of building power in our community. And I am learning from folks on our team who I think better embody and have that practice as, as part of their organizing I think one of the ways in which we did it while I was organizing families of incarcerated youth was just to build on the traditions of those families themselves in terms of how they were healing from harm. And obviously, you know, religion inside the United States has uh, impacts that are not helpful, but I saw a lot of our members use song and use just the practice of um, healing hands and really putting hands on one another to begin to to hold each other through trauma. And so these were families who, you know, were traveling hundreds of miles on average just to see their children and grandchildren and, and loved ones. And they would arrive and be told that they couldn't visit because they had on the wrong color pair of pants or because their entire um, kids you know, housing unit was on lockdown and so no visits would be allowed. They were told they couldn't even talk to each other inside of the visiting lines because the guards just wouldn't let them talk to each other just because they didn't feel like letting people talk to each other in visiting lines, I guess. And so just creating a space, I think, was the first step where families could be in conversation with one another um, and then trying to build on some of their own practices that have been prevalent in my own upbringing. But maybe I, you know, undervalued in, in different ways and just saw Families really um, bring that into the space. I'll never forget Alan Feaster um, who lost his son inside of the California Youth Authority. He would come into meetings just singing, you know, and through that process, other people would begin to sing and it would just kind of change the mood and the direction and really inspire us to do what we needed to do to carry on in, in the fight to close down youth prisons inside of the state of California.
0: Wow, I feel we could talk for hours and hours and hours and hours. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you both so, so much. It's been wonderful having you here.
1: Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. And thanks, Andrew. It's great being on the call with you.
2: Always great to be in conversation with you, Zach. And thanks, Rob, for bringing us together to dream in the ways that we need to be dreaming.
0: So thank you to you both. Thank you to you for listening, for your support of this podcast and to Ben Adicott for production and for our theme music. See you next time.